Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Gwyneth. <laughs> oh, and welcome to show your work. <laughs> I mean, now it's your turn to blindside me. You saw that tweet. <laughs> yes. We got a tweet from Ida. It was not the first tweet uh, saying that I sound like someone. And that would be one thing. And she's entitled to her opinion. <laughs> and maybe it's not the first tweet that we've gotten in that regard. Or email. But then people I know in my real life started to concur. And I really, uh, I don't know, I felt all kinds of ways, as the kids say about this. Is it like when you first found out you were Hufflepuff? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to make that link because I'm pretty proud now of the Huff, although (laughs) subsequent tests have have never really been determined. Uh, but I'm like a weird interhouse problem. The Gwyneth thing is causing me some problems. I did do one of those stupid quizzes, like the ones you've been linking to lately, yeah. that said, uh, you know, choose your food and we'll tell you what you look like. Oh my God, your food tastes are so Gwyneth Paltrow. What? You and your fucking kale before kale became a kale. No, it was just they served me all these. They're like, do you want waffles with sweet shit, waffles with sweet shit, or waffles with sweet shit? So I made my choices and they were like, you're a blue-eyed blonde. Yep. I'm not, by the way. And she was the visual example. There you go. You do eat like that. You 100% eat like that. Eat like what? Like... Gwyneth. No, I like food. Come on. Like, of all our friends. She likes food. Of everybody we know, I am the only person who will go toe-to-toe with you on a bloody steak. Correct. Right? Yes. Like. But you also eat, like, weird green shit. I like the weird green shit because it's covered in garlic and cocktail onions and, you know, uh, uh, uh. Pickled beans. You're drinking pickled bean juice with vodka right now. I could not be happier. It is like the budget martini that I've been provided at this house. Um, Okay, Gwyneth. So do you hear it? You do. (laughs) (laughs) You dick. I didn't. I didn't. I really didn't. And now, but then I thought, like, could I affect, like, a different voice that doesn't have it? But I do hear that there's something manly in my register that probably pings that same bell. Yeah. I didn't hear it until it was pointed out. And now? And and now I'm like, holy shit, totally. I mean, what if I try… Like, Gwyneth is totally a Yanny, and you are a Yanny. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's obviously a Yanny. No, the thing is, the recording was Laurel. I don't care, though. (laughs) Like… 
But like, what if I tried to emulate your voice? Like I could do that. I am known to be like a not bad mimic. So I could do that. I don't speak like that. You do. What? What? Yasik. (laughs) I just got a a point in my direction. You got a maybe. Yeah, but he has to sit here and live with you afterwards. So. Uh, No, I don't sound like that, but okay. You are a mimic. So have you been unconsciously mimicking Gwyneth Paltrow? No, no, in fact. Like, I mean, that would be a little bit anathema to me. Somebody tweeted at me sliding voices, uh, which is funny. (laughs) But also, I'm pretty sure that sliding doors is the beginning of my distaste for the woman. Uh, It was the barrettes. It was the, the barrettes that held back the short haircut that was supposed to be super trendy, but was actually like just a modified bowl cut from third grade uh, that really started my resentment. Barrettes. Because I wear barrettes. No, no, no. No, we're not talking about that. You may wear like a hair clip. I'm talking about the shit where women in their early 20s, uh, I'm dating myself. So, you know, when I was in high school, uh, women wearing like baby barrettes to hold back their bangs from their sliding doors cut. Right. Okay. Or like a sparkly flower clip. You know what I'm talking about? I feel like that's more Drew Barrymore. It, it, there was a crossover and yeah. the haircut was very similar. Okay. So, and look, nobody went and got the Drew Barrymore cut. They all went and got the Gwyneth cut. Right. All I'm saying, Elizabeth who tweeted at me, is that was the beginning of my resentment, but I have had many, many reasons since to roll my eyes at this woman. Uh, This woman. (laughs) She sounds like me, is really what I have to say. Okay. Okay. Okay, Gwyneth. We're ready? Okay, so Arrested Development. The cast, or most of the members of the cast, interview with the New York Times. It all goes to shit when they try to address the Jeffrey Tambor situation and then Jessica Walter attempts to share her experience of working on set with him and was mansplained to and gaslighted by everybody else. And then apologies ensued. (sighs) Go. So the thing about this that's interesting is we're recording on Friday night as we often do. This broke on Wednesday night, I think. Mm -hmm. You sent me a late night email. Yes. And it's still happening. It is still rankling everybody uh, as we speak on Friday night. This was the biggest misstep of all the missteps. Uh, What's most interesting to me is that the experience that Jessica Walter was talking about was actually brought up by Jeffrey Tambor in a different publication. Yeah. It was in The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. In a much more flattering article. Uh, I roll my eyes at the word flattering. Yeah. Uh, That was actually called Lines Got Blurred. Like, note the passive voice. I didn't blur the lines, but they just somehow got blurred. So... In the New York Times interview with the cast, uh, which notably did not include Michael Sarah, he was not there, uh, nor was Portia de Rossi. Right. Uh, they ask about this or reference it, and that's when Jessica Walter 
breaks down. I think a lot of people read the article, but not a lot of people maybe clicked on the audio link. Yep. She's crying. Yes. Like close to, some would even call it sobbing. But in the process of saying, but I have to let it go. I have to forgive Mm -hmm. you because I have to. And that on its own, if this was the end of the discussion, a woman in a room full of her colleagues saying, I have to forgive you and holding back tears. Yeah. Is not saying I forgive you, but I have to. Yeah. Is affecting on its own. Yeah. But then the rest of the article happened. Yeah. But then the rest of the reaction happened, which is, I mean, people have probably read it. If you haven't listened to it, go ahead and listen to it. But it was Jason Bateman essentially cutting her off, trying to tell her how she feels, and then rationalizing it by saying that this is the unique experience of being an actor and being an actor on a show of multiple seasons and getting to know each other and how it's such a special circumstance in these unique environments that this is just the shit that goes down. I mean, spoiler alert for the rest of our conversation, this is bullshit. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, He wasn't the only one. Uh, Linda Holmes, uh, who writes for NPR Monkey See, really broke it down in a way that I want to talk about uh, a bit later. But she sort of casually said, Bateman did the most by far. Will Arnett did the least. But it wasn't just Jason Bateman who was speaking in Tambor's defense. It was also Tony Hale being like, yeah, yeah, it happens, whatever. Will Arnett, to a certain extent. Yeah. uh, The only... Vocal voice of dissent mm-hmm. was Alia Shawkat. Yeah. Who you can hear on the recording. The recording is only a minute and change long. Yeah. But that's almost all that she says, Alia Shawkat, in the whole context of the interview. Yeah. Which I think is really telling. Yes. That she spoke up only then. Yep. So heartbreak number one is... Your fave is problematic. Yep. Did you love Arrested Development? I can't really remember. I you loved did, it. I think. I loved the original. Didn't really get into it in the reboot because this is the second reboot, right? It's like a recut reboot, right? Yeah. Which I, is hilarious and strange. Um, but Yasek and I, yeah, we we loved it. It was hilarious. I I actually there are times when I will think about something. Um, like, um, I know that in these times, maybe it's not funny and it's, it's not appropriate to say, but you know, when he coined his new profession being the analropist, right. Um, like that would just be a thing that Yasik and I just giggled over. Um, can I digress for a second? Yeah. At the risk of self-promotion. Yes. I have a book called The Name Therapist. Yes. And our friend Dylan, who has often graced the site and these pages. Correct. uh, Took one look at the book and said, oh, name the rapist? (laughs) Yes. Which I feel was inspired by an alropist. That's right. Anyway, there are tons, like I, it's a show that there are a lot of people who quote Seinfeld. I don't have Seinfeld memorized, but I can do that with Arrested Development. Right. 
So, and now they sort of recut it to essentially recapture the humor. And it landed a lot better with a lot of people. Not everybody. Not everybody. I've heard mixed reviews. But I guess what I mean by that is like a lot of people are, who were maybe on the fence, are turned off by this most recent… Recut, reboot. Recut, reboot, but also this most recent set of events. If you were on the fence… Oh, yeah. And this New York Times article was your reintroduction. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who are fundamentally unimpressed. Yeah, they've pulled the UK press tour. So Netflix has said, no, we're not sending you. Um, This has been a shambolic media promotional. Say that word again. Shambolic. Love it. (laughs) Media press situation. No more. No one's going in front of the camera anymore. Nobody's talking. And the thing is, is that to bring it directly to work, you had to know. You had to know this was coming. And so was, and at the very, at the most basic level, do we not care about media training anymore? Or do we not care about media preparation? Do we not have a plan in place? Okay, if we're going there though, the mistake is having Tambor in the fucking interview. Note me saying five minutes ago, Michael Sarah wasn't there. Portia de Rossi wasn't there. I don't know if they were busy or it was conscious dissension or what. Jeffrey Tambor, who plays George Bluth. Senior. George Bluth Senior is in the show. You don't need to have him on the press tour. If George Michael is not there, you don't need to have him. You could have done this without him. And this would not have been a conversation. Well, I think what's interesting is that you brought up the Hollywood Reporter profile that had come out, what, three weeks before, two weeks before. There were people online who were like, this article is shit. It was shit. Yes. Roxanne Gay called it out. It's all we need. But by and large, given that the Hollywood Reporter gave him a pass like that, they must have been like, okay, smooth sailing from here. Well, or they felt like they had to resurrect his career. Jeffrey Tambor, if you don't know or don't follow, uh, in reaction to sexual harassment claims, mostly stemming from Transparent, has been excised from the upcoming season of Transparent. He will not appear. I have no idea how Jill Soloway and the team are going to work around him specifically, but he's not there. And by all accounts, the bad behavior that made this be the case is on transparent. For all we knew, there wasn't bad behavior that was as acute on Arrested Development until the Hollywood Reporter article brought it to light, until the New York Times asked about it. And Then it was admitted to, and Jessica Walter said, it was incredibly difficult for me. I've never had an experience like that in 60 years of being in the business. And then Jason Bateman said, ah, it wasn't that bad. Ah, we're a family. It's fine. It's a problem. Here's the thing about Jason Bateman that really affects these conversations. Jason Bateman is himself a relic. Sorry, I just made the the kind of cringe face emoji, but 
He has been around since the days of Valerie's family and Teen Wolf 2, and he's not a terribly old guy, but the behavior that he is talking about normalizing may or may not have been around when he was a kid. Uh, He and his sister, Justine Bateman, uh, hot trivia, by the way, Jason Priestley also has a sister named Justine, just in case you wondered about showbiz families back then. And so he may have internalized this bullshit and normalized it, but I just want to cut to the meat of the thing. No, this is not normal. Screaming abuse at somebody else anytime, but especially in front of a crew of 40, 50 people is never, never normal. But it happens. And it is. Well, what do you mean it happens? It has happened. Mm -hmm. We know about the times when it's happened. Yeah. Christian Bale's screaming rant comes to mind and Christian Bale didn't wear that. Nope. Um, Russell Crowe, didn't Russell Crowe scream abuse at somebody? I believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't come up with a time, but. Right. I feel, I felt that there was a recording, but I could be conflating times when Russell Crowe drove his car into somebody's house in Newfoundland. Um, It's not typical. It is not something that happens in the course of a given week or month on set. I haven't been on hundreds. I've been on dozens upon dozens. Yeah. It's not normal. And yet, like. As you said, when it happens, most people don't wear it because it's men. David O. Russell, that's another big one. Yeah, but again, that's, I agree with half your statement and don't agree with the other half. You say most people don't wear it, and I'm going to say the only people who don't wear it are famous old white men. Mm -hmm. It is not escaping any of our attention that the people we're defending here always men who are considered to be, oh, they're brilliant. That was the, that was the Jason Bateman response. Well, it's such a process and he's such a great actor and he's done such work and learning about himself. No, that's not the case. I I don't care what the culture was in the seventies or eighties when Tambor was making his name or when Jason Bateman was coming up. Being an asshole was never a precedent or a requirement for Hollywood success. Really? Yeah. Who have you heard of Steven Spielberg screaming at? Sure, but I've also heard of like Michael Bay being a dick. Yeah, that's fine. But there's, first of all, there's different ways of being a dick. Last week we talked about Ryan Murphy, who's a petty bitch. And you can be a petty bitch, but that's not the same thing as screaming abuse at somebody. We have talked about the possible ego missteps of Matthew Weiner, showrunner of Mad Men, but they don't necessarily come down to screaming abuse at somebody. I'm not trying to say there are degrees, but no, I am. I am trying to say there are degrees. There's assholes and then there's public humiliation. Mm Mm-hmm. And no matter what degree of an asshole you are, no matter if you fire somebody for chewing the wrong flavor gum or photocopying on wrong paper, you usually give that person the grace of being denigrated in private. And to cut somebody down in front of everybody at a time when you know 
that nobody's going to come to their defense because you're the most public grandfather on set, and I say that in sort of the empirical sense, is bullshit and, generally speaking, not tolerated. Remember that our stereotype of difficult stars is people who won't come out of their trailer. Yeah. Right? People who won't engage. It's not about screaming fits. It's about people who are too insecure to face everybody. Right. That's our stereotype. Or people who have a tantrum in the wardrobe trailer. For sure. For sure. I guess it's just really hard for me to, like, agree with the statement that this is not how we become successful in this industry when, like, you know, the biggest example of that kind of behavior, the screaming, the tantrums, the public humiliation, like, was just arrested. Uh, Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say, though, is it's not synonymous. For example… If you want to go there, if you want to talk about some of the examples we've had over the past couple of years, let's talk about Bill Cosby Mm -hmm. and whose whole brand and whole MO was never raising his voice above an irritated, annoyed irritant. There's a video of him being interviewed by uh, one of the major news organizations, maybe Primetime Live or similar. And they ask him about the allegations against him. And he says, I don't want to talk about it. And then after the cameras are allegedly turned off, he says, now, I would like you not to air the thing that you asked. And it's very even in tone. And his whole thing is about being even in tone. You can be a monster and not raise your voice and scream. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kevin Spacey was a monster who did not raise his voice. It is not synonymous, I guess, is my point. And there are screamers, but it's not by any means the... It's not a requirement, I guess, is my point. You can be an asshole without screaming. Yeah. And I suppose the corollary to that is that you could scream and not be an asshole, but only once. Only once, only twice. I will say about the Christian Bale example that we haven't heard other examples since, right? That even David O. Russell is trying to keep his shit under a little (laughs) better wrap. Yeah. Right? Even him. Even him. Yeah. I don't know. To me, it's a really particular type of power move. And all of these things are power moves, as we know. Men who harass women sexually, men who publicly humiliate other women uh, or other men, uh, it's power moves. Yep. It's power moves, and yet I want to go back to that rationalization that Jason Bateman gave, cloaking it under the umbrella of family. And Helen Peterson wrote a really, really interesting piece. Oh, it's so good. Um, for BuzzFeed about this situation, the title of the piece is Jason Bateman showed how, quote, family is used to excuse the inexcusable. When Bateman dismissed Jeffrey Tambor's outburst at Arrested Development co-star Jessica Walter by saying, quote, this is a family, he reminded us how often that word is used to paper over serious problems. And so the point of this piece, which is so good, of course, it's AHP, is that this is the go-to move in many industries, but we're a family. And in families, we just kind of, 
Um, we're so authentic to each other. We forgive and forget. That's right. And, you know, haven't you been in a family and you've screamed at your brother, your sister, and you still, you know, get up the next day and have a meal together. And this is what it was. Except, as she said, it's not a family. This is also a workplace. And I have to say my reaction to the piece was, and this is why AHP is so good, is I agree with it 100%, but I found it also painful because I also have referred to workplaces as family. I consider our crew of writers at Laney Gossip to be family. We've gotten together. We get together every year. Most recently, we got together to celebrate our 15th anniversary. I consider it to be a very familial environment. And so it made me think, well, is that wrong to call it that? Um, Or is the characterization of family, as Anne points out, when it comes out in relation to something negative, something that hurts us all? I don't know. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Uh, I think it's hard. Uh, If you take a family at its most literal sense, Say you're talking about a typical family of four, like a 2.4 children kind of scenario. Uh, The idea is, well, everybody has their flaws and their faults. Right. And when you talk about uh, a crew, a Laney Gossip crew or the crew on any show or whatnot, it is absolutely a family in the sense that the people who you work with who you never see on camera are as important and as integral to the show as the five or six or 10 people that you see on camera. That part is true. If you ask me about my greatest connections from the last five productions I was on, you might not recognize some of the names because they are behind the scenes people. But the difference is in a family, in a real life family, those four people have equal license to be horrible. Uh, as we all do, right? Like, uh, this is where the family metaphor gets muddled. But yeah, your family is supposed to love you no matter what. And sometimes you're horrible and sometimes they're horrible. And and Helen Peterson underlines that even that is a bit of a blanket for sometimes not okay behavior. Uh, I like all of her stuff, obviously, but this one in particular was really resonant and I really recommend that people see it. But the difference here is that Jeffrey Tambor and Jessica Walter, but really Jeffrey Tambor and Jason Bateman and Will Arnett are more important members of the family. Mm -hmm. They have more say than the camera op B or the focus puller or the wardrobe mistress or whoever else is supposed to be in the family, but who don't get to behave that way. If they behave that way, if a guest star on three episodes behaved that way, they would be gone. It's not an equal footing the way a family Mm -hmm. is meant to be. And that's just one of the many fallacies of the way he constructed that. And it's also not happening in a bubble. It's happening in front of a fucking audience. It, that footage probably went to the network. And I have no idea what the specifics were, what it looked like, or what Jessica Walter's face looked like after she was screamed at that way. 
but it takes you down in the eyes of 60 to 90 onlookers. It's not private. It's not just kept behind closed doors. So that metaphor, I'm afraid, falls down quite quite easily. What is the takeaway here for people who are in other industries but who've experienced the same? And to me, it's not just getting screamed at, but it's the then being told how to feel suck it up for the sake of the family, get over it because this is what is expected of you on the team, make little space for yourself or shrink the space that you have so that we can accommodate the bigger space that this person needs. That is relatable and um, that is relatable in any industry. We've all been in that situation where we've been told, maybe don't complain about this. You know, yeah, it sucked for you, but you know what? Like, it's going to be fine going forward. You just kind of have to. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Live with it. I'm really glad that you asked that. Uh, but, but the people who are being told that, maybe that sucked for you, by and large, they are often women. Or people who don't have much power, or they're people of color, or they are people who are otherwise marginalized. And those are most often the people who are being asked to shoulder that burden. Uh, And I want to reference something that happened uh, on Twitter, uh, as many of my references uh, happen to be these days. Emily Andrus, the showrunner of Winona Earp, said, what women need is more male allies in the business. She's talking specifically about the TV business, but I don't think it stops there. Uh, She goes on to say, stop excusing your asshole coworker bro's abusive shit. Your disgust and rejection of his misogynistic behavior probably shames him more than a woman's protests ever will. This is great on its own. I retweeted it. I agree wholeheartedly. But then I got a question from at Scripts by James, who is a young fledgling writer who wanted to know what a young person should do in this scenario. Again, talking about television, but it applies anywhere. What do you do when you're the lowest person on the totem pole? Which I thought was a great question because his point was the newbie is often told, sit down and shut up and learn. And that's true across the board in any industry. Uh, And I feel like the takeaway is tell the person that you saw what happened. Acknowledge it. You don't have to go toe to toe with the aggressor in the moment, but tell them. Tell them you will corroborate their complaint or, and I think this is really important, make the complaint yourself. Nobody 
has to work in an abusive environment. Nobody should have to, even if you are not the target of that abuse, it poisons your workplace. And we see that, unfortunately, because of what Jason Bateman internalized and because Tony Hale and Will Arnett didn't jump to Jessica Walters' defense because they sort of went, well, yeah, or they stared at their shoes or whatever it is. I think the takeaway here is when an abusive asshole in whatever form that takes is in play, the greatest thing that you can do is say that you see the bullshit happening. You don't have to David and Goliath it and stand up to them with your with your arms sort of straight behind you, but point it out, make the moves. And I think the the risk or the fear is that there that you'll be collateral damage if that's the case. But sooner or later, you're going to be collateral damage from a bully anyway. So it may as well be for something that you believe in. Is that too idealistic? No, I like, I really like that advice about at least going to the person who has been abused and who's on the receiving end of whatever that fuck shit is and being like, I saw that. I just want you to know I saw that and it was gross and I understand how you must be feeling. It always feels better to like be seen and to be acknowledged because unfortunately what happens in those situations is not only do you endure the humiliation, but then you sit around wondering, well, shit, am I feeling bad for no reason? And you slink back to your office That's or your right. hidey hole and everybody avoids you. And then you revisit it. Did I provoke it? The, then the doubt starts seeping in. Did I provoke it? Was I not this and that and the other enough? Um, and that's what sucks. So anybody wants to hear that they're understood. I love that advice. And I will also say that most of the time this kind of shit happens in a power imbalance situation for sure. But what's crazy about misogyny is that it can also happen when you don't perceive there to be a power imbalance. I have been on many a shoot and just to let people know how, for all intents and purposes, in the most simplistic way, when you're shooting for where I work, which is in television and broadcast television as a reporter, you have your crew will be your host, your producer, and your camera person. In those situations, the producer is the boss of the shoot. 100%. The director. Duanna, you were a producer in this situation. You were my producer at times. So the, the talent, the host, answers to the producer. The producer gives the direction. This is what I need from you. Here are the questions. This is where I'm cutting this story. Please ask these questions. Have fun with it or start slow. The producer is the boss. The camera and the talent should be following the producer's lead. There have been times, many times, in the course of my career where a camera person, and by and large still in our industry, the camera people are men. Sure. And I'm going to further clarify that the camera people are for hire, which is not to say they're not integral parts of the team, but they're often showing up to the shoot with a half an hour's prep or none at all. They're coming in cold. Yeah. relative to the producer's five days of prep or the yeah. host's three hours of prep yeah. or whatever's happened. And that's not to say that their work isn't important. Their it's skill, just the nature of the job. That's right. Their skill is important. They've, they know the lighting. They're going to know all that. But 
how many fucking times have I been on a shoot where uh, I've had a female producer, I am a female, and this camera person, the man, will walk in and be like, no, we're going to do it this way. Okay, but I just think that if you um, position the camera this way, we'll be able to get the host and the subject and the reactions. And No, that's stupid. The look on your face just now, as I was talking about this, you look like you have PTSD because I'm pretty sure you've been there many times. I've been there in non-scripted shoots. I've been there in scripted shoots. Maybe this happens to men who are producers. I don't know. I doubt it. I do too. But you gird yourself Uh for several fights before you actually get to rolling camera. Yeah. Uh, First, you have to explain yourself to your host, to your actor, if you're working in scripted, to your colleague, if you are working on a team making a presentation. Then you have to explain yourself again to somebody who ostensibly has not spent the time on this that you have, but who feels that their opinion is important. It's not always a fight. I don't want to say it's always a fight, but you prep for it to be a fight more often than not. Yep. And my point originally is that, yes, by and large, there is a power difference. However, in a case like we've just described, when the power, in theory, belongs to the producer and that producer happens to be a female, this shit still happens. So it's conditioning. It's not the industry. It's conditioning. It's institutional. It's systemic throughout society. Right. And that conditioning is what causes Jason Bateman to fall over himself to defend, oh, the learning that Jeffrey Tambor has gone through instead of, fuck, Walter had a terrible time back then and I didn't acknowledge it back then. Mm -hmm. And again, I didn't acknowledge it now. I will say that while his apology was, you know, the only thing he could have done and still kind of weak sauce, I appreciated, question mark, that David Cross pointed out that when the interview was released, his wife, Amber Tamblin, who's been a very vocal participant in Me Too and in the movements, ripped him a new asshole. It sounds like it. For not speaking up. I I mean... She and he both said so in so many words. So, I, I, again, this is just more work for women to have to stand up and say, you asshole, you didn't see what was happening to her? Yeah. At the same time, sometimes that's when they listen. So I suppose we're taking our victories where we can get them. No, I mean, it's the Amber Tamblins, but to your earlier point, we need men as allies. I mentioned David O. Russell earlier. Um, George Clooney kicked the shit out of him on the set. <laughs> you just, you just, just spat out your drink <laughs> on the set of Three Kings. Is that the name of the movie? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I do not feel like looking up the order of what came first, I heart, of what came first, I heart Huckabees or Three Kings, but there needs to be a correction. And as you said, oftentimes, unfortunately, they respond to corrections from other men who are coming correct. Which is not to say speak for women or that women need you to defend them. 
What it is saying is that if a colleague of yours, if we're talking about families or work families or colleagues, if a colleague of yours is eating shit unnecessarily, don't pretend it's not happening. Speak up regardless of who it is, and we get a little closer to something that looks like equity. Speaking of equity, there was a roundtable. The Hollywood Reporter did um, a drama actress roundtable ahead of Emmy nominations, which are going to be in about five weeks, five or six weeks. So it's around that time, right? Um, Six women… Claire Foy, Angela Bassett, Sandra Oh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Tandy Newton, and Elizabeth Moss. Right. And what's so interesting about this, you know, a few years ago now, maybe six or seven years ago, uh, The Hollywood Reporter started doing these roundtables. What's most amazing is that they do them before. They do them before the nominations come out so that uh, they can speak to the people they want to speak to yeah. without being hamstrung by who's actually nominated. Right. But also, it's almost like a gamble. These are the people, 80% of them, they are thinking are going to be in the conversation, are going to be in the nomination field. I'm really excited that Sandra Oh ended up here because I actually, I, I really do think that Killing Eve has had enough impact to at least have a chance and she, of course, carries so much Sandra Onis that um, now that she's back headlining a show, um, it's super exciting. And this is going to roll into my first point. Um, she already talked to E. Alex Jung at Vulture about this role and about how when she was first sent the script, she thought she was probably reading for a supporting character. And that she almost fell over when her agent, who's on the phone with her, said, no, you're Eve. Like… You're reading for Eve. You're reading for Eve. The show's called Killing Eve. That's right. It's Killing Sandra O. Oh. Like, that's… Yeah. Yes. And she had an epiphany. Like, that was her moment where she's like, look what I've absorbed. Look what I've gotten used to, to the point where when I get sent a script um, that is intended for me to be the lead, I actually don't process it. I'm already looking for what supporting part I can play. Um… She addresses that again in uh, the roundtable, but she goes on to say that, um, you know, she took her time between Grey's Anatomy and Killing Eve. Uh, She says that she was in a financial position not to have to work. And so she used that financial, she calls it economic freedom, I think. She uses that economic freedom to develop a new skill set. She calls it her toolbox. And one of the things in her toolbox is saying no. And you and I talk about this all the time or have done. At the beginning, it's yes, yes, yes all the time. It has to be. Open door, open door, open door. Because you don't know what each open door is going to offer to you. Mm -hmm. You don't know what opportunities or what learning or what whatever you're going to get. Yep. The the caveat to that that kind of breaks my heart is uh, for the uninitiated, Sandra Oh is Canadian, uh, possibly less flag wavy than some, but she's Canadian and had been in really 
acclaimed Canadian productions, which is not the same thing as saying she was in high-profile Canadian productions. Uh, But it does break my heart a little bit that her work, which had been really well-acclaimed and well-acknowledged in Canada, was not the same thing as having economic security. That that came as the second female lead on Grey's Anatomy. And it's worth noting We've talked about this before. The standard TV contract is six years, maybe seven. And I believe Sandra O oh stayed for 10. Mm-hmm. So she was riding both the economic security and maybe the, the confidence, the character confidence for longer than strictly necessary to make sure that she would have the time to build her toolbox and that she was ready yeah. for the next thing. Ready for the next thing is a, a great way of putting it because success is a success is tricky. I mean, when it arrives, then you have a new set of challenges, which is what makes it so compelling, which is what makes this thing so fun. And that new set of challenges is, okay, I've spent all the yeses to this point and, you know, going into every single door, finding a way to find the time, to find the energy to go into every single door that opens. And then when success arrives, then it's a turnaround. Then the new skill is, what do I say yes to? And therefore, how can I get better at saying no? Do you think it's hard to learn to say no? Oh, yeah. Talk about that. I think it's hard to, I think it's hard, if we want to just talk about first, in, from the acting perspective, you know, what she was saying was, in, let's face it, in acting, you hear all the time about not having any money, right? You're like going to audition after audition and you're getting no all the time. So when you finally get something, you're like, oh shit, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this commercial. I'm going to take this extra part. I'm going to take this one line. And then one line turns into one episode and you feel like it's going to dry up at some point. And let's talk about the elephant in the room here. Uh, we have this round table of of Claire Foy and Elizabeth Moss and Maggie Gyllenhaal and so forth. Maggie Gyllenhaal is another story altogether that we'll get to, but Sandra Oh is more primed than most to say yes because how many roles are there for an Asian woman mm-hmm. who is not 22? Yep. Who is, you know, not generally speaking, written as the lead, right? Yep. There was that long period of time where it was, oh, there's actresses and then there's the Lucy Liu parts, right? Like that's how they were seen for a long time. There was not an appetite for an, I want to say Asian American, of course she's not American, but uh, for an a woman of Asian origin to be the lead. So she was even more circumspect about her choices, knowing that those opportunities don't come up as much. And she still was like, yep, now that I do have the economic security, I'm going to really make that happen. I am going to wait. And she compared it to a relationship. She compared it to love, right? Where you wait for the right person to come along. And God, I, I just... This is why we do the podcast. This is a bit of a digression, but at its best, that's your relationship with this business. It is love. It is nonsensical at times. You make the illogical choice at times. You fall in love in places and scenarios that you never thought you would. 
Uh, again, the Sandra O oh who had emerged from Canada pre-Grey's Anatomy might not have chosen a network soap as the place where she was going to hang her hat, but look how well it did for her, not just in terms of her profile, but in terms of the work she got to do. Like she trusted in the unlikely horse that Shonda Rhimes was. I just want to point out that also we get gifts from these women in terms of the things that they say. Yes, it's like a relationship in all the ways. Please continue. Well, that was what struck me. I mean, I knew I was going to love the Hollywood Reporter Roundtable because Sandra Oh was on it, and then she delivered. She's like, hey, this is what it has been for me. I have not always been considered the lead. Now this is in my toolbox, and here it has given me perspective. I was waiting for a role that was the love of my life. He, she would walk in, and I would say, yep, I'm going to invest. Here I am. Let's make a relationship. Let's go and fall in love and have our fucking, I don't know, trip to Paris. Um, Of course, that's not the only wisdom she drops. Um, It's full of Sandra O wisdom. But that one was, to me, something that I feel like all of us, if we're lucky to have all the yeses line up at some point, um, that is the takeaway in career, in work, in management, in strategy. But along the relationship tip, there's one more part of this that was so fascinating to me. They start talking about being expected to be sexy. Tandy Newton talks about how every character description is about she's strong, not giving too much away, she's sexy. Angela Bassett says, oh, I've never been asked to use my sexuality. (laughs) Maggie Gyllenhaal, really? Yep. Again, we'll come back to Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, And Sandra Oh, like, chimes in, I'll echo Angela's experience. For me, I don't think I've ever gotten a job on my body, I'm paraphrasing, as fabulous as it is. And Claire Foy says, that's really interesting and alarming. I think that is such a double-edged sword. One of the things we always have in our sort of shorthand about a lead actress is strong, intelligent, sexy. Like if it's not the second descriptor, it's the third, right? You wouldn't write a role. You wouldn't think this person wasn't sexy in almost any role. And then there are two women here, two of the six going, no, I've gotten there all the way without that. Now, I'm not sure I totally buy Angela Bassett in that capacity. Like, I think she has had several roles that had sex appeal to them. Yeah. But I think it's a really interesting distinction while we're talking about relationships and uh, what you get into and, and what you fall in love with, that that sort of physical embodiment of your feelings is not in play for Sandra O oh, for Angela Bassett. Well, I agree with you on the Angela Bassett thing, but I also understand where she's coming from. Like, if you said to me, um, pop quiz, Angela Bassett, sexy role, the first thing that comes to mind as you were talking was Stella. Of course, Stella. Right? But of course, in her mind, how she would have approached Stella is, this is a woman who had to get her groove back. So at the beginning of that, She's not sexy. In fact, she is feeling unsexy. She is feeling unappreciated. She is feeling like 
yeah, the groove was missing. Right, but the acquisition of one's groove <laughs> is about, like, feeling sexy getting there, right? Like, that's that makes sense to, I think, everybody who's watched it. I also think, and I will appreciate dissent on this if there is any, but I also think there was sexiness involved in playing Tina Turner. Like, Tina Turner was a whirling dervish of energy more than anything else, but I think that sexuality was involved in the role. This is a healthy digression that we didn't expect to get into, (laughs) but it was there. Yeah. And I, yeah. No, I think that that was really, that was a really, really, um, I like that. I mean, we could, we could probably spend an entire podcast just on the sexiness portion of that discussion, because as you mentioned, they're talking about sexiness. Angela and Sandra are both like, yeah, no, like not a thing that we get called back for. Like I can, you know, Sandra, I can see that happening, right? Like if the character's calling for sexy, she's feeling, "Mm, it's not going to be me especially being an Asian woman and Asian women, Asian people get like very, very few of the parts. Right. But then that's one of the billion gifts that Grey's Anatomy gave us. Christina Yang, the stereotypically high achieving, unemotional Asian woman also had a healthy sex drive and sex life that was important to her. She was also a sexual being. Thank you once again, Shonda Rhimes. Yes. Continue. But then there's, as you mentioned, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's like, really? Because I uh, use it all the time. Like, that's my whole thing. (laughs) And the reason I keep putting an asterisk on Maggie Gyllenhaal is that she, I just think her road was different. I think Maggie Gyllenhaal does a lot of really skilled work, but her parents both worked in the industry. Her brother works in the industry. I just think your entree is different, although on some level she has a similar trajectory in that she's not, let's just say it, she's not traditionally hot, right? Like maybe she had a harder time in her 20s uh, because she was not a sexy ingenue in the same way, even in Mona Lisa Smile and all the rest of it. She wasn't quite the nubile innocent some of the others were. But yeah, it's a different set of circumstances to be Maggie Gyllenhaal than it is to be Tandy Newton or uh, or Angela Bassett or some of the other people who who didn't make this roundtable who may well be nominated. Well, it's it that was really the heart of the sexiness conversation. It was between Tandy and Maggie who were coming at it from different perspectives. Maggie was like, it's a weapon for me and I have used it and it would seem very skillfully in her career. Whereas Tandy is like, it has made me vulnerable in the course of my career. Um, And they weren't debating, but it was clear that they come at it from two entirely different experiences. Tandy sounds quite raw and perhaps even a little traumatized by the fact that her sexiness was me tooed against her. What's your most memorable Tandy Newton film moment? Don't think. I blank. Like to me, I always think of her being sexually assaulted in Crash. It's not the first time I saw Tandy Newton, 
but the vulnerability and the whatnot is, and that's not what Tandy Newton wants to hear because that's not her performance, you know? But it's a way that when she says my sexuality was always sort of out front, whether I wanted it to be or not, that's the image that jumps to my mind. I can see the dress. I can see the scenario. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was up against a car. Uh, That was sort of how that came to play. And how Tandy Newton, the name, came to be, even if she wouldn't have preferred that to be the case. Yeah, I, I I, blanked, as I said. I don't have, like, that... I can't answer that specific question. I will say, though, that the movie that came to mind um, was... Uh, it was like a Guy Ritchie movie. Do you know which one I mean? Rock and Rolla. And Guy Ritchie doesn't necessarily write interesting roles for women. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so while I don't have an image of her in my mind of that movie that like that totally meets the criteria of the question that you were asking. The fact that that was the movie that popped into my mind may be inadvertently an answer to your question. I guess the sort of end around to all of this is they close out the article with Elizabeth Moss talking about the fact that she had uh, on top of the lake 100% uh, control over, she had approval over her nude scenes, over her sex scenes. Yeah. Which is about a woman in power. And, you know, none of the rest of them chime in. They're like, me too. I totally yeah. had that too. That's, you know, that's madman privilege right there. Yeah. Uh, which I guess just shows the difference between those who do and those who don't. Uh, but I found that it was interesting that for her it became much more academic because she got to control it than those for whom, even though they're in this rarefied situation, even though they're the top six who are chosen to be profiled, even though there's a glaring omission, uh, Carrie Russell, the Americans, (laughs) I'm not the only one who thinks so, Mm -hmm. uh, that she was the one who felt, and maybe, maybe Megan Gyllenhaal also felt like, no, sexuality is a thing, but I'm in control of it. Yeah. So that was a really interesting distinction. But we also, overall, what we saw in this interview, in this roundtable, was this exchange of information, which is something we've been seeing more and more of since Time's Up. We've talked in previous podcasts and episodes about the membership meetings that they're having in Time's Up, about how they're exchanging best practices. They're like, and specifically, I'm thinking about Tracy Ellis Ross and her fee negotiation uh, they were doing the same thing in this roundtable with Claire Foy. Claire Foy's example on The Crown resulted in both Tandy and in Maggie getting um, pay raises. HBO just looked at that Netflix situation over at The Crown and was like, oh, fuck, we better preemptively do this right now. Gave them parody with their male co-stars. That's right. So um, Maggie and Tandy both acknowledged that it was Claire and her example that resulted in their equality or, you know, getting parity. And then in this sex talk, they're saying the same thing. 
the minute that Elizabeth Moss was like, oh no, I have total control. They show me the cut and it is not allowed to go anywhere unless I say, yeah, that works for me. And Tandy and Sandra and Claire were all like, what? Really? You can do that? They close out the talk, in fact, with Tandy Newton saying, I wish I'd known that. That's why we all need to talk. And this is talk that's published and sanctioned and all the rest of it. So you can imagine the talks that are happening behind closed doors with more cocktails. That's right. Which brings me back to my conspiracy theory about Michelle Williams. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? (laughs) Do you remember when we were talking about all the money in the world and we were trying to like investigate and source how it was that it was blown up anyway. Like, you mean who leaked the what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, is this going to be about Busy Phillips? No, it's not going to be about Busy Phillips, but my point is that the women of Hollywood are doing this behind the scenes. They're having membership meetings that are open, and we know about them, like the Time's Up, I don't know, regularly, weekly. And then along their network which used to be perhaps the Whisper Network. That Whisper Network in the past was, who do you avoid? How do you protect yourself? That Whisper Network has expanded perhaps in scope and in content to include, hey, I just asked for this on this deal and how many share points and what I'm going to get and whatever, and they gave it to me, FYI, do the same or here's how to go about it. I'm so glad you brought that up because as with everything else we talk about, this is not just for Hollywood. I've been lucky enough to be in some discussions uh, among my peers in my industry about creating greater diversity, both gender diversity and uh, uh, diversity in LGBT and uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color writers and other participants in the industry. Being in the room and hearing these things discussed is empowering. But what's even more empowering is inevitably there's somebody who says, I haven't seen there be a problem. Or really, I've never, I've never felt that. <clears throat> somebody in the Hollywood Reporter article. But what happens is you then watch other people, even as you yourself feel like, God, I can't say anything now. Somebody just said it's not a problem somebody else speaks up and says, no, actually, I saw it happen in this case at this time. There's such power in seeing who those people are and getting your bravery from their bravery. God, please make these groups. Please make these alliances, whether they are whisper networks on Facebook or those Uh, Google Docs that were going around about salary disclosures or roundtables like this one, because even if you yourself don't feel like you are sharing your particular truth or that you're that entitled to share what's going on with you, you gain so much information about who's willing to say what, and it kind of floats all boats. I'm, I'm such a fan, and I'm so glad you said that. I just want to end on a conversation, well, this segment of our podcast um, that I had recently with someone in the business, and she 
was sharing with me a revelation that she's had recently. And she's a veteran. And she was like, you know, for a long time, they told us not to talk about money. And they would tell us not to talk about money because they said that we would make ourselves vulnerable. That in talking about how much I got paid, people would be jealous and I would get mean-girled. She was like, and I bought it because, of course, we assume that jealousy and feeling resentment is the driving force in all of these networks and in all of these ecosystems. She's like, so I bought it, I believed it, and I abided by it. She's like, I have since come to realize after I kind of did away with that and started being more transparent is that that's what they told me to protect themselves. It wasn't that us disclosing how much we made would, you know, um, make us all resentful of each other and suddenly start tearing each other down. That's what they hope. What it was, was the minute we started sharing, it would mean that we would direct the resentment at them. Why am I not getting paid that as much as Duanna? I want you to give me what Duanna's getting. Duanna's not going to lose. She's like, it took me a lot of time to realize, let's say that Duanna, you are getting paid $10 and I'm getting paid eight. And you share that with me. They made you feel like Duanna, you would somehow lose your $10. That's or, not the case. Or that it's going to make my life so terrible if that's you find right. that out. But that's not the case. Like, and it, it, what the case is, is that they would lose two more dollars because they would have to pay me the two more to make it equal to you. Right. But even more than that, it works both ways. It floats everybody. If I'm making $10 and you're making eight, you go, hey, $10 is possible. And you go get it. And I, in turn, go hey, going to ask for what you want is possible. We can do this. Yeah. Sharing information is share, is floating all boats. It wins both ways. I just, I like the way that she broke it down to me because I think that is the fear. When you're at work and they say you're not supposed to tell people how much you make or whatever, what your bonuses and benefits and whatever are, they make you feel like you are compromising yourself and that next year you won't get the same because whatever. As if they could penalize you for talking. That is bullshit, by the way. I just want to be 100% transparent. No company can penalize you for disclosing what you make or what your benefits are or anything of the kind. It's utterly, uh, I want to say unconstitutional. Uh, we are lucky enough to have listeners from all over the place. So I don't know whether it's constitutional or not. It's bullshit. They can't do it and they won't do it. Well, someone will, and like someone would argue back who's been in the same position saying, yes, like I can't get dinged for that, but they'll find something else to ding me on later. That's the fear. And, you know, you roll your eyes at it, but it's true. That that's, is a legitimate fear. That's fine, but the knowledge goes with you. If we play that situation out to the end, they'll ding me on something else. Then it's kind of bullshit. Then I sort of ride this situation out uh, to the point where I'm not happy there anymore or I realize I'm worth more elsewhere. The knowledge goes with you. Even if you realize that the place you work is not the Garden of Eden, 
the knowledge and that disclosure and that camaraderie goes with you. You don't leave it behind when you start new somewhere else. I hope so. I believe so. I really do. But tell us what you think. Send us your thoughts on this, on the ways that you've collaborated and the disclosures that have worked well for you or not worked well for you. Let us know what you think. And finally, we come to Drake. Last minute addition to this lineup, uh, because a few hours ago, this is again Friday night, um, Drake started trending number one worldwide on Twitter. And (laughs) I was like, what did he do now? Because essentially, whenever he does anything, Drake will trend number one worldwide on Twitter. Yeah, but it's never like, I don't know. It's never like Drake caught in an argument at Bed Bath & Beyond. Like, it's always something. Yes. He's always trending on purpose. Correct. Um... I did we yes we did or maybe we didn't um did we did we I the last time I talked to you about this kind of drakeness was when he was fucking trending number 1 on Twitter for playing video games We definitely talked about Drake and video games and um, yeah again calculated Yeah we may have talked about Drake and Rihanna So anyway here is the brief 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 Pusha T released his album called Daytona, produced by Kanye West. And on the album is a track called Infrared, where he calls out Drake for allegedly using a ghostwriter, which has been a knock on Drake for a long time. Meek Mill tried to come for Drake about ghostwriters, and Drake, as we all famously knew, shut him down. And I mean, even before that, right? One of the early videos of Drake on some radio station, I want to say it wasn't Howard Stern, but of that ilk where they record the radio broadcast, had him, uh, you know, performing with rhymes that he had on his BlackBerry. So that's how old this story is because BlackBerry is still a thing. Right. And the criticism came even then. He writes stuff down. He, you know, he might not write it himself. He gets it from wherever. Anyway, do we have those couple of lines? Because I think it's only a couple of lines on infrared, right? Yeah. Okay, so here's the lyric on infrared. The bigger question is how the Russians did it. It was written like Nas, but it came from Quentin. So Quentin is the alleged ghostwriter for Drake That is the line. So that album comes out. Wait, let's just pause for a second here. Yeah. If you are a casual observer Mm -hmm. of this kind of shit, like not for nothing, we know that fans of rap are deep scholars, that they know references, that there are a million deep references involved. But if you are a casual observer, nowhere does it say Drake or the six, or any sort of uh, overt references. It's real deep cuts, yes? You got to know your hip-hop, but I feel like at this point, the culture knows all of this anyway. Yeah, and they're they're knowing to look out for call-outs. But I'm just saying it's two lines. Yeah, I mean, the setup is a little longer. Like, the game's fucked up, N's beats is banging, and your hooks did it, the lyric penning equal, the Trump's winning. The lyric penning is the, this, the, the, 
the highlight, right? And then it goes into the bigger question. Sorry about my, like, <laughs> delivery of those lines. I mean, you didn't put a G on penning, so I think we're okay. <laughs> um, anyway, so Infrared, Daytona, it comes out. Uh, when? Let's get specific. It Thursday drops- night. Thursday night. What? Midnight EST? Yeah. What are we talking about yeah. here? Midnighty. Night night. Great. Okay? Yeah. Uh, Friday afternoon. Not even 24 hours. <laughs> it's like Friday at 6. <laughs> L- less than a day. Drake drops uh, Duppy. Okay, I'm sorry, Duanna. <laughs> I think it's worse if I try and like... Isn't it worse if I try and use, anyway, that's just the way I pronounce things. Duppy freestyle. I have my face shoved <laughs> in a backpack because I'm, <laughs> I didn't know that two syllables could last so long. Duppy. <laughs> anyway, Friday afternoon, not even 24 hours after Daytona drops, Drake comes with Duppy freestyle. And, okay, Yasik and Joanna are laughing at my pronunciation of duppy freestyle like a valley girl. I think. It wouldn't it be worse if I didn't use my real speaking Look, style? understanding that we are perhaps out of our cadence depth, uh, everybody has their own method, but I feel like the best method is just move on past it past as fast as possible. Duppy Freestyle. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. So the song comes out. And yeah, the track. Five minutes later. <laughs> five minutes later, Drake is trending number one on Twitter. People are parsing the lyrics. And he goes in hard for both Pusha T and Kanye West, who produced the album. The reason I specified not the song, but the track, is because uh, obviously this came out, as you said, like 20 and a half hours after the initial like yeah. disc was dropped. Um, it's not, you know, there's not an awesome like hook in the middle, right? There's no sing-along chorus. It's, there's there's quite a, a lovely backing track, but that could have been in the archives for any amount of time waiting for this situation. It's the lyrics, which are incendiary. Yep. And just a, a brutal uh, that really make this track. Well, let's start from the beginning. Let's not jump over the timeline because, again, this is less than 24 hours. So... That is number one, like, the thing that people are talking about. They're like, holy shit. Some people take two days, three days, a week to come up with a response. Drake, it took him, again, I know that we're, like, fucking focusing on this, on the, focusing on this, but it was immediate. Okay, but to me, that's the only way to respond. Oh, 100%. But Not- even by the standards of respond quickly. This is quicker than respond quickly. But I don't just mean respond quickly because of your reputation or because, you know, you, you have to 
come back at somebody who comes at you or whatever. I mean, because the specific accusation is you don't write. Yep. And to come back in 20 hours with lyrics, this, I have to say it again, this incendiary is yep. like, watch me write. But also, I'm kind of bored. Because, <laughs> because that's how the song opens. Well, okay, but let's just, okay, uh, yes. The song is, I think it's three minutes and ten seconds of just wall to wall, just deep, painful cuts. Flames. Flames. Uh, and But I think that's part of the point, right? It is so easy to dismiss you like a fourth grader who insults you yeah. that, yeah, I can do it in an afternoon and then spend the rest of my time like finding the perfect sample to put underneath it. But also, yes, I'm almost bored that I have to do this. Like he's doing this, I should say, on the Friday afternoon of the long weekend. Yeah. Uh, it's a long weekend in the U.S. Uh, nobody does anything. Like it's well acknowledged that it's supposed to be a three-day weekend, but basically all of America takes at least Friday afternoon off or maybe even Friday morning or he was, maybe even Thursday afternoon off. He was supposed to be planning a pool party. He absolutely <laughs> was already at the pool. Correct. When the Pusha T track dropped. Now, we're sounding like fangirls here, and it's not that we're fangirls of just Drake and we love Drake. This is work. But this is how you become a fangirl of Drake because every time there's a conflict and a beef, which maybe is like endemic to the rap community, right? This is yeah. part of how it runs. The culture. Every time something like this happens, he responds in record time. Locked and loaded. Unbothered, like not breaking a sweat. Yep. With something that wipes the floor with his alleged opponent. That's work. It's work. And now the jokes on Twitter, which I love, like, I mean, this is what Twitter is for, are like, okay, so he just has pre-written. Has he pre-written a whole catalog of whoever his enemies are? He's just got it, like, ready to publish, on load, oh, so-and-so has come at me. Okay, let me just uh, pull up the this track and then that track. Hit play, send, it's out. That's, even if that might be the case, that's fucking work too. It's prep work, yeah. I tend to see it not that way. Uh, knowing that, you know, knowing that these accusatory tracks might cut at you some of the time, I see it another way. I see it as like, if something like this comes at you, what the hell does Drake have going on on a Friday before the long weekend that can't be interrupted to write a vitriolic diss track? Well, I will say that he actually gave people a warning. At the beginning of this year, he was like, hey, don't step to me this year. I have no time for this. <laughs> That's a warning. Right. A few weeks ago, as we know, he announced that his upcoming album, Scorpion, would be coming out. So there is a lyric in this song, W Freestyle. Um, See? You, you got past it there. Nobody, like, nobody flinched. There's a lyric on here where he says, 
don't push me when I'm in album mode. I love it. So he is working on Scorpion, yeah. which means that Drake is in studio even more so than usual. He's hunkered down. He's in lockdown. And typically, I would think that when any artist is in studio, that's when everything is firing at top level. Well, and when the focus is biggest, and I'm glad you brought it up because Drake, not uh, he's not unique in this way, but Drake notoriously goes into the studio at one or two in the morning, um, spends the day kind of noodling and thinking and whatever, broing down and seeing what his coterie of, of producers has for him, and then goes into the studio at that time. So this happened at the perfect time. I also love that that lyric, don't come at me when I'm in, in album mode, album mode means like gloves are off. Oh, yeah. I only have so much time to deal with you. Yeah. So I'm not going to beat around the bush. Yeah. Here is the worst of it. No, here is the Tony Stark arsenal. Like, here is the Stark Industries, all the bombs and all the missiles, bomb, here, done. But again, they, what he had said was, don't come at me when I'm in album mode. You chose to release this track when you know I'm already firing on all cylinders. I'm not on holiday. I'm not on a break. I am already working on my best. And now I'm just going to do a detour. This isn't going to even make it on the album. So remember, this is just like a bonus. No, this is like a, a diversion yeah. on a Friday afternoon. So can you imagine if he can accomplish this when you give him 20 hours turnaround time, what the setup for Scorpion is going to be when he's already flying on like top gear? Now. The other aspect to I'm in album mode is uh, if Drake has writers and producers and, you know, he has a number of collaborators who have been famously worked with him for a long time. And I don't think that he pretends that he doesn't. If he has those collaborators, they're fucking standing by. What else do they have to do when something like this happens? but stay up all night and text him vicious verses that he can then incorporate here. There's nothing that is higher priority, right? Yeah. Uh, like, you know, uh, there are so many of these lines, and I'm not going to pretend that I knew a lot about Pusha T before this, uh, before this happened, but like, here's a couplet that kills me. Man, you might have sold to college kids for Nike Mercedes, but you act like you sold drugs for Escobar in the 80s. Aubrey Drake Graham was born in 1986. <laughs> like the references predate his existence in uh -huh. some cases. Um, you know, or I had a microphone of yours, but then the signature faded. I think that pretty much resembles what's been happening lately. Like, God, it's not even a perfect rhyme, but it's perfect. It's so brutal. What I like about Drake and what you and I have always talked about, like, what endears us to Drake, is that in his diss tracks and also in his, hey, baby, I miss you, <laughs> I, I'm thinking yes, about you. The, the you the best oeuvre, <laughs> yes. Is that he manages to touch on universal collective feelings. Ooh, good call. And so this is the line that I really, really enjoy. 
I could never have a Virgil in my circle and hold him back because he makes me nervous. I want to see my brothers flourish to their higher purpose. So that is a lyric that I believe specifically is targeting Kanye. Kanye West had a friend, Virgil. They were collaborators. Now Virgil has left him to go, I believe, work at Louis Vuitton. Yeah, that's right. And so what he's getting at here is the essence of friendship. How many of us can relate to, are you threatened by a friend who is talented? And do you try and suppress the talent of that friend? Or do you support the friend and realize, as Drake says, when I win, we all win? I, yeah, for sure. And the thing is, there are two things here. First of all, I'm a nerd and I immediately thought of like Virgil, like, who wrote the epic Latin poem. Right. Uh, like, I can't suppress, you know, it, this talent that I have in my midst. Mm-hmm. But also, Drake has backed that up over and over again, right? There are names that we know yep. because Drake has made them. Uh, the first, like, the ones that come to mind are Noah Forty Shabib yep. and Boy Future. Wanda and so forth, yeah. who are producers of his. Because he is generous with his his attention and praise because to kind of talk about something else we were talking about in our previous topic, it costs him nothing to big them up. It yeah. costs him nothing to give those names their due. And here, though, this is not just a cut like your dick is small. This is a cut that reverberates into somebody's inner circle. What he's saying is, you're a really bad friend. That's why people aren't loyal to you. That's why people have left you. Well, you're, yeah, in this case specifically, like you're working for somebody who's a bad friend, right? Yeah. Like it, it, it shifts somewhere in the verses uh, from being a, a flame track for Pusha T to being a flame track for Kanye. That's right. Both of them at the same time. Is also super skillful. Again, we're Very talking about skillful. three minutes yeah. produced over 20 hours. Yeah. But, and here, here else is where you're really just pouring acid on a wound. Um, you know, he opens, he opens really with, so if you rebuke me for working with someone else on a couple of Vs, what do you really think of the end that's making your beats? That's Kanye. I've done things for him I thought he never would need. Father had to stretch his hands out and get it from me. Oh, my God. That is so clever in how much that hurts somebody like Kanye, who says he's the greatest, that he's a genius, and then to say, I was your protege, I was the son, and now the father, the mentor, has to extend his arms out and say, please, can you help? Oh my God, that is, ugh. that it's, is, I can actually picture it. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And I should also say it's also a reference to uh, the track, Father Stretch My Hands, that Kanye had on The Life of Pablo. He tweeted a thanks to Drake for it, uh, which, you know, Drake is basically saying here, I wrote that, or I wrote substantial parts of that. So, you know, it, basically the implication is 
you think I'm the only one who works with people, with writers? You think yep. nobody else is working with writers? Ask him. Ask him where that came from. So it to me, I mean, listen, I think you would agree with me when I say that you and I are not like hip-hop experts and what qualifies as a sick burn. Um, well, is- yes and no. I think that's the beauty of hip-hop, right? I will 100% stand behind you and say – no, I'm not a hip-hop scholar. I don't know all the references. I rely heavily on Genius, which, God, I love Genius. We've talked about it before. But, guys, go and get your education. But I also think that's the beauty of hip-hop, that when it's at its best, mm-hmm. you don't need to know. Yeah. That you can feel the flames on the side of your face, yeah. to mix metaphors, whether you know all the history or not. Well, my point is that… Here, when you're coming with lyrics like this in this time frame and with this reach, because remember, Drake has essentially, with his amazing social media prowess, weaponized social media and digital forms of communication. It doesn't matter if the lyrics are on his fucking phone or if they're in storage and they were written, I don't know how many months or weeks ago. Or if somebody from Scarborough texted him these verses at four in the morning. It doesn't matter, at least to us. Maybe along the lines of hip-hop standard, you need to be able to come up with it on the spot and have it memorized. Yeah, but how much quicker than 20 hours can you be? Exactly. But for all intents and purposes, the way that this was executed and rolled out with that timing and this kind of precision, none of those accusations or diminishments matters anymore. And if there was any doubt, the skill extends almost before and after the track. Specifically, the thing that people are talking about over and above the actual track, the actual disses within the lyrics that have these specific references is that at the beginning of the track, there is a sigh of exasperation. (laughs) Okay. It just is so amazing. Like, Drake was ready to sit down to some Netflix and some Sopranos reruns or something. After a few hours in the studio already. And then this happens and he's like, ugh, fine. All right, I will deal with this. It's like… Layers and layers of that kind of work, though. But including that side… Yes. …contextualizes, I see you as a pesky toddler. Let me discipline you so I can go to bed. You can't… Yeah, you can't look at that as anything but high-ass level work. That's the technical term. I love it. High-ass technical work or high-ass level work is right now, I mean, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, I wish that was me. I mean, you have all weekend. Like, get started. (laughs) (laughs) Let me start building my archive of (laughs) revenge. So, uh, you know. Seriously, if you have to be petty, be petty like Drake. 
Well, it's so interesting that you say that. I was listening to the delightful podcast, I Hate It But I Love It, uh, uh, the episode where they talked about how Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip is just Aaron Sorkin being a fucking petty bitch for a whole season about things that happened a million years ago. And one of the million reasons it was terrible is because it was too weak. It was too petty too late, basically. If you're going to clap back do it early and often. Yep. Uh, and yeah, people will fear you. Let that be the lesson of the week. If you have to be petty, do it early and often and be as organized as Drake. And if that happened in your office via like a reply all email or something, please God send it to us. We could really use that uh, as a delight to squeal over. And with that, thank you so much for listening again for another week, another episode. Thank you for all your emails. We love them. We share them. We giggle over them. And a special shout out. Thank you to Kaylee Donaldson for your amazing shout out to us this week on Pajiba. Um, not only did you acknowledge our work, you also grouped us in with Ira Madison III and Keep It, his podcast, um, which is pff, high, high praise. So we hope that we can continue to meet that standard and Kaylee Donaldson, we are big fans of your work, too. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, yeah, we will continue to try to to try to live up to what you wrote. Uh, tell us when we do. Tell us when we don't. Send us your emails. Give us your reviews on all the places you get your podcasts. We love them. Uh, even if you say, stop sounding like Gwyneth and... Don't valley girl your uh, hip hop references. Any and all will take them. And I just want to make one final note about Kaylee Donaldson because she, through her Twitter handle, taught me how to pronounce that, I'm assuming, Irish name. It is Irish, yes. C E I L. Yes. How do you, what is that? I D H, I believe. Okay. Uh, that would be a Kaylee, not unlike where Irish dancers dance. That's what a Kaylee is, really. All right, Kaylee, shout out to you. Thank you again. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.